Wishful thinking. How often do you engage in it? Wishful thinking is, according to Merriam-Webster, the attribution of reality to what one wishes to be true. Dictionary.com says it's the interpretation of facts, actions, and words as one would like them to be rather than as they really are, imagining as actual what is not. Some examples of wishful thinking. That my speeding ticket will be dismissed because the officer that gave it to me doesn't show up at court. Wishful thinking. Wishful thinking, because I've played the lottery for the past 10 years, I'm due to win any week now. I haven't really done that. Wishful thinking that the worship service will end at 1130 some Sunday. Wishful thinking that Chris and Frankie Bennett will actually hear the voice of the Lord and stay in Charleston. (laughs) Wishful thinking, they said they will do it, so they will. (laughs) We all engage in wishful thinking because in our wishful thinking world, we get what we want and people are who we want them to be. So I have this question, do you ever enter into some wishful thinking about Jesus? Do you wish somehow that he were different? Do you wish that he would be more of who you believe that he is not? Do you wish that he would require less from you or differently from you than he does? How would you change Jesus in your wishful thinking world. I don't know how you might answer that question, but I know this to be absolutely true. Jesus is always better than we can imagine. In fact, he is exceedingly and abundantly better than we can imagine him to be, even in our best imagining of him. He is even better. So our goal should be this, to know Jesus more and to know him rightly. That should be the goal of our lives, to know Jesus more and to know him rightly. I pray that's, that we'll be convinced of that this morning as we come to the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take them and open them to the Gospel of Matthew. When you've gone to the Gospel of Matthew, turn to the fifth chapter. And when you've gotten to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, let's stand together so we might hear read the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking on the mountain saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, 
Bless us now, as you promise, with understanding of your word. Bless the reading of it, as you promise. Spirit of God, join now the truth of the word of God and bring transformation into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, Jesus begins here with this command. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think. See, people have already formulated thoughts about Jesus. That's why they've gathered on the mountain to listen to what he has to say. Many of them have formed ideas and opinions about him based on what they have seen him do or heard him say. As we saw last week in chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus calls us, his disciples, you and me, to do good works in this world so that our good works might point to and glorify the Father. Well, Jesus has already been doing that very same thing himself. Before he ever climbed the mountain to do this teaching, he said in John chapter 5, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus has already been at work. He's already turned the water into wine. He's already healed the son of that royal official that was at the point of death. He's already cast out an unclean spirit from a man. He's already healed Peter's sick mother-in-law. He's already completely healed a leper. He told the paralyzed man already that was lowered through the roof by his four faithful friends to get up, take up your bed, and go home, and the man did. He's already gone to the pool of Bethesda, and he's seen the man there who's been crippled for 38 years, and he healed him. On the Sabbath, on another Sabbath day, he healed a man with with a, a withered hand. These are just some of the things that Jesus has already been doing. Additionally, he's had two famous conversations, one with Nicodemus, where he said, you must be born again. And where he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's already had that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well where he said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He's already said to her, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So having spoken these words and done these works, Jesus feels compelled to tell those gathered on the mountain, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Why does Jesus say this? Because something about what they saw him do or heard him say did not mesh with the understanding they already had of the law. And Jesus knows what people do. We take information and we use it to make assumptions about other people. Not necessarily malicious or evil, just wrong. You see me on Sunday mornings. This is the setting in which you know me. And what you see on Sunday morning 
makes you think certain things about me. And likewise, I see you. This is our setting. And I see you, and so I make assumptions about you. And then we sit down, not on Sunday morning, and we talk and we say, I had no idea, fill in the blank. Or I always thought, fill in the blank. Week before last, I had the opportunity to go to, to Presbytery and had the opportunity to talk with some other PCA pastors, and we were chatting, trying to get to know each other better, though we've been together for years. And one said to me, now, you grew up Pentecostal, right? Well, my proper Presbyterian pride was cut to the quick. And I said, no. And so you could see the confusion on his face. It was evident. And this incredulous tone in his voice when he said, really? I was sure you were Pentecostal. I said, dude, I've been a Presbyterian longer than you've been alive. Now I realized saying dude didn't help my case. Because this guy would never say dude, believe me. But based on what he had seen, watching me and listening to me, he thought I was Pentecostal. He had several other wrong thoughts about me, but I can't get into those right now. But he had written a completely wrong narrative to explain the me that he knew. And that's what the people on the mountain had done. Jesus knew that as people watched him, who he was, how he moved through the world, how he interacted with people, what he said, what he did, caused them to write a wrong narrative of who he was. In comparison to what they had seen and heard from people who were supposed to know the law and love the law, in comparison, Jesus seemed lawless. If that were not the case, why would Jesus say, do not think this? Because he knows they were thinking it. Another example. Why would I ever say to you all, do not think that I have come this morning to leap from this pulpit and do backflips down the center aisle? See, you would never think that because you've never seen me leap from this pulpit. Pentecostal though I be. <laughs> Nay, you've never seen me do a backflip because I've never done one in my life. So I would never say that to you because you would never expect it of me. On the other hand, I might say, do not think I have come to tell a joke at which no one laughs. Because based on your personal experience, that happens quite, quite regularly and it's a distinct possibility. And so I would want to relieve you in your thinking that that's not why I've come today. And so the big challenge for me that comes from this command of Jesus is that we have to strive to think rightly about who Jesus is. To allow his word to write the narrative and not our own wishful thinking about him. And the humbling truth is that I might not get it right. I might get it wrong. You might get it wrong, as these people did. 
But they may have wanted to get it wrong. See, they may have been engaged in some wishful thinking that Jesus had actually come to abolish the law. And why might they wish that? Because for these people, the law, as they knew it, and how it was presented to them was a heavy, burdensome thing. Jesus says this about the scribes, who were the experts in the law, and also the Pharisees, who attempted to live out in their lives everything the scribes told them they should and must do. Jesus says this about them. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So, of course, there might have been some hope that Jesus had come to abolish the law because they thought it was impossible to keep the law anyway. Spiritually speaking, these people were stoop-shouldered. The law as it had been taught to them, had bent them over completely. So, of course, they held out hope that that heavy burden could be lifted from them. Of course, they wanted to experience freedom. So their wishful thinking allowed them to believe that Jesus had come to abolish the law. So here's another good and gracious thing about the character of Jesus. He doesn't leave people in ignorance. Neither does he leave them in error of wrong thinking. Jesus, in his divine nature, in his omniscience, knows all things. He knows all of your thoughts and all of my thoughts all the time. The thoughts of all people in all places, he knows them. And so he acts to correct those wrong thoughts. Matthew tells another story, mentioned it earlier, about the paralytic lowered through the roof. They brought this man to Jesus, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did. See, Jesus did not leave the scribes in their wrong thinking. They believed Jesus could not forgive sins. Jesus made it clear he could forgive sins. And nothing is more important for them than to get right this truth. Because the greatest need they had and the greatest need of every human being is how to deal with the sin problem. So whatever their wishful thinking about what they wanted most, whatever their wishful thinking about who Jesus would just be to get in line with them, nothing could be better than who he really is. And who he really is, is the one who can forgive sins. 
He wanted the scribes and Pharisees to be right in their thinking about that. Because the Lord is so gracious to us. He's not satisfied that the people on the mountain or that you and I should continue in our wrong thinking about who he is or about what he does. We have to understand him rightly if we are going to live well in this world. If we're going to live lives of peace that pass all understanding. If we are going to live lives that flourish. See, the peace disappears from our lives. When we live with a wrong understanding of who Jesus is or or what he's come to do, the flourishing that could be ours withers. So we have to put our wishful thinking aside. And we have to allow Jesus to exegete or to explain himself. So when we come to the Lord, when you come to the Lord, when you come to his word, come humbly and come prayerfully. All of us come saying, Lord, set aside my wishful thinking about who you are and what you've come to do. There's probably way too much of me and too little of you in that thinking anyway. And my wishful thinking could not even attain to, much less surpass the goodness of who you are. Lord Jesus, help me know you rightly. Not only in general, but very specifically. And as we move on this morning, we see that Jesus is very specific in what he communicates here. To prevent these people from writing a wrong narrative. To prevent them from engaging in wishful thinking. Let's move on and see that Jesus specifically wants these disciples. And he wants you and me to think rightly about the relationship That Jesus has with the law and the prophets. They were thinking wrongly about that relationship if they believed that Jesus had come to destroy the law. You and I, we also have this very tenuous relationship with the law, don't we? And so as a result, we have people who are kind of crazy. Like crazy grace people over here and they're lawless doing whatever they want. Grace, grace, grace. On the other hand, we have these people who uh, are only about the law. And they turn into these hard and cold and apparently lifeless legalists, right? Am I telling the truth? Of course, none of us are that way here. We get it all right, even if we're not Pentecostal. Jesus here then used a very graphic word to demonstrate that he has not come to and the validity of the law. He hasn't come to abolish it or to destroy it or to demolish it or to dismantle it. That's what the word abolish means. It's a word you would use to describe what you're going to do to a house that you are tearing down and getting rid of. But let's be honest. Wouldn't we love it just a little bit if Jesus had said, I have come To abolish the law. It's done. No longer relevant. You are no longer bound by it. Now you're probably thinking about a law right now. 
forefront in your mind. And whatever law is keeping you from doing what you really want to do, or perhaps you're doing it anyway and the law is just making you feel horribly guilty, don't you wish sometimes that that law or those laws would just go away? That Jesus would say, I have come to abolish the law. When you and I feel that way, and I feel that way, I'm assuming you're as bad as I am. Maybe I shouldn't. But when we feel that way, we don't rightly understand the law. Particularly if we think of the law as only the Ten Commandments. If we think about the law and its setting as only in the courtroom, and if we think the only players are judges and lawyers, that's definitely part of the law. But it's only a subset of it. When we reduce the law to just the Ten Commandments or just the rules, then we miss the point. So listen. Listen how the people in the first century listening to Jesus thought of the law. For them, the law was the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when you think about these books, they contain so much more than do's and don'ts and courtroom drama. The law is the story of God's blessing. The law tells the story of God creating all things. Very good. We can only imagine the beauty and the blessing of an unspoiled creation. The law tells the story of his covenant with Adam and Eve, which was all about a relationship with him, which was about walking with him in the cool of the evening. That's the law. That beautiful relationship was preserved through obedience to God's commands, commands which, by the way, were not oppressive. God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. How many trees were there? I can't even imagine. Every one of them, God said, you may eat from. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Of all the trees, you may eat. It's all yours. Only one, only one is off limits. Now that's the law. And it's not oppressive, is it? It's not repressive. The law describes a beautiful relationship that God had with Abraham. And all the blessing Abraham experienced just because he was called by God, just because God in his grace called him, and for no other reason. That's the law. The law is a story about the relationship that God had with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. The law is the story of how this loving and gracious God delivered his people from slavery, the least of all people. He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt through the leadership of the great prophet Moses. And so we think about the law in addition to rules and regulations and judges and courtrooms, we must also think about relationship. We have to think about covenant, about how God, by his own choice, bound himself to people. About how God placed a rainbow in the sky at the time of Noah and how that bow pointed back to God if he should ever be unfaithful to keep his promises. It's about God being the one to pass through the parts 
down the aisle that Abraham had created by laying the sides of the animals on either side, God walked through saying, should I ever be unfaithful to my promise to you, to my covenant commitment to you, be it unto me as has been done to these animals. So law is about relationship. It's about a faithful relationship. The law tells of protection and provision. The law tells about manna from heaven that fed hungry people. The law tells about water gushing from a rock in the desert so that thirsty people could drink. The law tells about a cloud that led people through a desert by day and protect, provided protection from the sun. The law is about a pillar of fire that led them by night, that warmed them, that lit the way, that drove away the scary darkness and mischief of a desert. Is the law Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Is the law regulations recorded in the book of Leviticus? Absolutely. But those laws were put in place to protect and preserve community and relationship between God and others. So how sad to reduce the law to rules and regulations and ethical requirements as if they sum up who God is and what His intent for us is. The law is first and foremost covenant. It's relationship with a loving and gracious God. Now, why would Jesus want to abolish any of that? Why would we want to abolish any of that? To abolish the law would be to abolish relationship. To abolish the law would be to to abolish covenant. And listen, here's good news. God will never, ever, ever ever do that. Is that good news? But Jesus refers here to the law and the prophets. The prophets took the story of God, the Pentateuch, and they applied it as a reality in their lives, in their day, in their place, in their circumstance, whatever that might be, through the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. And here's what the prophets did. They called people back to God, back to relationship, back to covenant faithfulness. The prophet Hosea calls back, calls out, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. The prophet Joel, yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The prophet Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Why would Jesus want to abolish any of that? The beautiful call to return to the Lord. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it, to, to fulfill it. Jesus doesn't come wielding the sword of grace to fight back against God and his law as if it were something that needed to be defeated. Jesus didn't come to right anything wrong about the law of God. He says here, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. One commentator writes that Jesus is not offering plan B or a self-contained new revelation nor a simple explanation of the true intent of the law that was easily recognizable. But rather, Jesus brings and gives the true consummated or fulfilled understanding of the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill the perfect law of God, to set it free from misinterpretations and misunderstandings that make us engage in wishful thinking that the law and the prophets were something other than they truly are. That law was not flawed. It was just not complete. It was never intended to be. In the very moment that God gave the law to Moses on the mountain, God already knew that this was not his final word. God already knew that this was not his complete word. By his design, God knew that this law was limited in what it could accomplish. God always knew that that law would have to be superseded and transcended. And so God, Jesus didn't come back to, or come to, to go back to the law. And to help us perfectly understand what we have misunderstood so that we can live perfectly ethical lives. No. The Lord has better for you and for me than just an ethical life of do's and don'ts. The people listening to Jesus had that. They had that. And it bent them over under its weight. And it led them to despair. The Lord has for you and for me relationship. A covenantal relationship with a faithful God. Jesus completes the beautiful relational work that God started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And the law that he gave to preserve that relationship. Jesus does not dismantle it. And so now the provision and the protection and the pardon that the law and the prophets record, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is your provision. He is your protection. He is your pardon. Is that good news? Jesus is the full and complete representation 
of God's heart toward you and me. Why should we wish him to be other? Why would we wish for more? The only more that we need is to know Jesus more and more and more. And to know him rightly. And so we make this our goal, you and I. And we pray toward this end. Pray that we might have the power to understand how wide, and how long, and how high, and how deep is his love. Pray that we might experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Pray that we might be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Pray that we might know that He is able, through His mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Strive to know Jesus more and to know Him rightly and to therefore love Him deeply. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the word, the living word. Come to fulfill perfect law of God. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would keep us from error, from misconception, from misunderstanding that would cause us to wish you were other, to cause us to wish that your law were other. Lord, it is so beautiful. And we need your spirit to convince us of that so that we would be people that would love the law, that we would be people who love the relationship of the law that it provides between us and you, that we would love the covenant, Lord, your promise to be our God and to make us your people. Lord, it's beautiful. We don't want anything other than that. We thank you that we have it in Jesus and we pray now, Lord, that you would help us know him more and more and more. Spirit of God, open our eyes to understand more and to understand rightly. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to abolish any of this, but to fulfill it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.